Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you looking for a way to extend the working time of your hot hide glue? Have you considered using the ruler trick on your plane irons? Do you ever wonder about the usefulness of large frame saws? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 46 of the show for March 27th, 2019. Before I start today's show, I want to take a minute to thank all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. And thanks to two new patrons this week, Kevin Martin and Jonathan Rabkin for signing up to support the show. Listener support helps keep this show going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. If you're already a patron, again, I thank you. And be sure to head on over to the Patreon posts page to submit your questions and requests for this month's patron Q&A video that'll be coming out the end of this week. So I got some good feedback this week from David Moody about my workshop floor. I discussed the new workshop and some options for the floor a few episodes back, and David had a really good suggestion. He says, I got around to listening to your podcast about design considerations for a new workshop. I went through this same process a year or two back, and I ended up using a wood flooring option over concrete that was relatively cheap, easy to self-install, and really nice on the feet. Sounds like you may be in a similar situation with your shop build soon, so I thought I would pass along what I did. My workshop was a new standalone structure with a slab on grade foundation. I designed it to be convertible into a garage if someone after me wanted it that way. I was coming from a garage workshop and like you, I knew I didn't want just a concrete slab for the new shop floor. I had tried pads in the old space but didn't like them. Sweeping up around them was a pain and I considered one of the rubberized flooring options for the new space but didn't want something that dark for the floors. I really wanted a wood floor but didn't want to lay down a bunch of sleepers and drill a bunch of holes in the concrete. So what I did was this. One, a layer of visqueen taped over the concrete as a vapor barrier. Then a layer of three-quarter inch tongue and groove plywood underlayment laid directly on top of the visqueen. And then three-quarter inch tongue and groove knotty ponderosa pine planks, which were cheap and locally sourced, nailed over the plywood. I didn't even bother to secure the plywood to the concrete, it just floats. The planks, when nailed to the plywood, sort of stabilize everything in place. Suppose if you wanted to be extra certain things wouldn't creep on you, you could sink some strategically located screws into the concrete as anchor points. But you really shouldn't need many. The two layers nailed together and left free-floating haven't been an issue for me at all so far. And it turns out that the combination of plywood and pine planks makes for a delightfully comfortable, almost springy workshop floor even though it's all right on top of the concrete slab. One other thing to consider about wood floors, for a while I fretted about getting a finish on the planks because that's what you're supposed to do with a wood floor, right? One thing led to another and I started using the shop but never got around to finishing the floor. In retrospect, I'm glad I didn't. Yes, it did get grimy looking pretty fast and has stayed that way, but it has fantastic traction. It's way more grippy than a floor with a finish. Will it last as long? Maybe not and it certainly won't spiff up as nicely in the interim, but that's a trade-off I'm okay with. 
It's also freed me from being a worrywart about nicks, dings, scratches, paint splatter, swarf dribble, wet shoes, etc. It's the very definition of an unpampered work surface. So just thought I'd pass along this experience for your consideration when you get to that stage of shop fitting. I have been very happy with the way it works. Honestly, doing a top layer of plywood instead of the solid wood planks would probably be just as comfortable and even easier to install. But I really like the, lo the look of the wood planks. It suits a hand tool shop quite nicely. So thank you, uh, David, for that. That is actually an awesome idea. Um, and it is something that I will uh, consider when I get to that point in my shop construction. I got a, another bit of feedback to share with you this week. And this one actually just comes from me. Um, I listened to a podcast episode recently um, from the Against the Grain podcast. Um, and this is uh, a, a fantastic podcast um, that if you're not listening to already, you should be listening to. But um, they recently had um, a fantastic episode on color theory. And, it, you know, it's a question that I get asked all the time, you know, um, what's the best way to color this wood or make uh, this wood look like another wood or get this particular look um, in, a, in a piece. And um, the, the basics of it all comes down to color theory. Um, and the episode really uh, went into a lot of depth on color theory and, and they their guest was uh, Josh Brackett from from Brackett and Company Restorations and he really goes in in depth on color theory um, and how it pertains to woodworking so if you have any interest at all in doing anything but a clear finish um, over on, uh, on your projects definitely download and listen to uh, the Against the Green podcast on color theory because it was an absolutely fantastic episode and uh, you know I, I highly recommend it. So let's get into our questions for this week. Our first one comes from Eduardo Huvera. He says, my question is regarding the use of hide glue. Is it okay if I mix hot hide glue with tight bond hide glue? Maybe it's because it was cold, but I've had a lot of trouble using hot hide glue in my projects. It was tacking way too fast for me. Tight bond by itself is okay, but it's not tacky at all. I can't rub, uh, I can't do a rub joint with two pieces, and sometimes the the long open time is not that much of an advantage. I'll probably just try it before you have a chance to answer, but I'd like to hear your take. So, um, you can certainly mix the two together. Um, really, what what you're dealing with with tight bond liquid hide glue or any liquid hide glue for that matter is that it has a, a tack retarder in it some something that keeps the glue from tacking up and drying um, solid at, at room temperature um, or slightly above room temperature most liquid hide glues do still tend to have some bit of gel um, until the temperature gets quite warm usually into the into the 70s so um, if your hide glue, even your liquid hide glue, is in like a shop where it's like 50, 60 degrees, it's probably still going to be kind of gelled and you're probably still going to want to warm it up. Um, but what keeps it liquid it, for a longer period of time is that it has um, something in it, some additive that keeps it from gelling and from tacking. Uh, and that's a good and a bad thing. 
um, it's good because it allows you to extend that open time. It gives you more working time with the glue. Um, and that's good because if you're doing complex joinery, maybe you're gluing up some dovetails, um, you kind of want that extra open time. So the, the liquid hide glues, whether you're using the tight bond or Patrick Edwards old brown glue, they're going to give you that longer working time. Usually they have either uh, um, some urea or salt or a mixture of both in them. Um, and that's a way that you can you can keep your hide glue from gelling so quickly. Um, you can do that with your own hot hide glue. You don't necessarily need to add the, like the tight bond liquid. You can, and it may help give your hot hide glue a slightly longer open time. Um, but like I said, you can do the same thing just by adding, uh, in some cases, a little bit of salt or a little bit of uh, urea, which you can usually find in the fertilizer section um, of your, your garden center. Um, you can just get pure urea crystals or pellets um, and you can add a little bit of that to your hide glue and that will help to keep it from tacking up so fast. Uh, another thing you can do, you mentioned that it's cold, you know, it was cold in the shop. So that is certainly going to contribute to the glue tacking up quickly. What I will often do if my shop is too cold, um, if I can't get it warm enough, the, the shop environment, I just won't use hot hide glue in that environment. Uh, sometimes you just can't. Uh, but if it's kind of borderline, what you can sometimes do is heat your pieces that you're going to be gluing together. You know, if you're doing a mortise and tenon joint, maybe heat those pieces up with like a heat gun first and get some heat into the wood. Um, and with the, the surface of the wood a little bit warmer, it's going to give you a little bit more open time. It's going to prevent that hot hide glue from tacking up so quickly. You can even set up, you know, some kind of contraption some type of stand where you can hold your heat gun over the area where you're going to be doing the gluing um, or you know some type of small um, space heater with a fan in it that kind of blows across your workbench in the area where you're going to be doing that work um, and that will help to keep the hot the uh, hot glue from from tacking up so fast um, but in some situations you know if you're doing veneer work or if you're doing rub joints you want that that quick tack so um, you know you can use salt or urea to extend that tack time um, or you can just kind of heat the environment or heat the workpiece and that should give you a little bit of extra time as well our second question comes from John Bates he says I'm reading hand plane essentials by Christopher Schwarz in the section on block planes he describes the issue of the wear bevel caused by the flat side of the iron wearing at the point from use he explains that the wear bevel will degrade the plane's ability to cut properly and hinder sharpening. Schwarz also advises to use the ruler trick to create a small back bevel on the iron. I've used the ruler trick on beveled down hand planes, but I haven't considered this option for block planes. What are your thoughts on using the ruler trick both for bevel up and bevel down planes? In case you recommend against this option for sharpening, do you have any tips for getting a good polish on the back of the iron? For larger irons, I haven't been able to get a good polish without using the ruler trick. So um, I've I've done it both ways. Currently, I don't use uh, the ruler trick. And if you're not sure what the ruler trick is, rather than me explaining it here, I would say it's it's probably much easier for you to just Google it. Um, 
and it will come up right away. Uh, there's plenty of videos on it. And it's easier to see in a video. Essentially, it's putting a small back bevel on your plane iron, uh, on the flat side of the plane iron. But um, I've used it, um, and I use it extensively on older irons, um, like old wooden hand planes, uh, especially where it can be difficult sometimes to get a good edge on those irons because um, maybe they've warped or they were never flat to begin with, um, you know, from the forging process. Or sometimes the pitting in uh, on the back is bad enough that um, putting a small back bevel on with the ruler trick kind of helps. So I have used the ruler trick in it and it works great and I don't think there's anything wrong with doing it. Um, on the other hand, if an iron doesn't need it, if you don't have a problem with it, uh, with the iron, then I would say it's also not a necessary thing. The wear bevel is certainly real. There's been uh, there's been plenty of study on it, and it's it has been shown to be a real a real thing. It's not just something uh, made up that that some crazy woodworkers came up with. Um, the wear bevel is a real thing. However, the wear bevel is also quite small, um, and regular sharpening and honing for the most part, will take care of the wear bevel if you're paying attention to the back of your iron. So if you manage to get your iron flat and polished on the, the back side or the face side, as it's often referred to, um, then regular maintenance and wiping the burr off of that uh, flat side as you sharpen, you know, as even if you polish that face side to a mirror shine, the next time you hone, you should be um, maintaining that backside on your highest grit stone and wiping the burr off, chasing the burr during your sharpening process. Um, and that's going to take care of the wear bevel. So if you've already got an iron with a flat back, maybe you bought uh, a new plane from Veritas or Lee Nielsen, and the back of the iron is already flat, um, and you can just bring it up to polish then you shouldn't really need to use the the roller trick so um, on my newer planes where i do have a, a good iron that has been lapped flat before it left the uh, manufacturer i don't use the roller trick but in in issues and in cases where um, the iron has some special situation that just makes it not worth flattening the entire back um, then i won't hesitate to use it so uh, i see no no problem doing it either way so our last question for today comes from hugo Villargen and he he wants to know if i could talk about frame saws how would i make one and why uh, so i will say this is going to be something that i cover in this month's patron extra video as well um, but i thought i'd just give a, a brief discussion of, of the frame saw uh, if you saw the patron extra video from last month, you probably saw me making sawing veneer, a piece of pine, with a, a regular handsaw. And in most cases, if I have to resaw or I have to make veneer, I'm using a regular handsaw um, until that piece gets up to be about eight inches, eight inches wide or more. When you start to hit boards that are you know above seven to eight inches wide, the uh, regular handsaw tends to get quite inefficient. Most regular rip handsaws are going to have um, tooth counts somewhere in the neighborhood of 
you know, five to six points per inch. That's that's pretty common, pretty standard. Um, you usually are not going to find too many, you know, standard hand saws with teeth that are bigger than about five points per inch. So when you start to get into the wider stock, what can happen is that those gullets can fill up with um, with shavings and sawdust before they have a chance to exit the cut. And when they fill up before they get a chance to exit the cut, the saw stop, stops cutting. It can, um, it can drift. It can leave excess sawdust and, and shavings in the kerf, and it could throw your saw off the line. So what you really need is a saw with bigger teeth. Uh, unfortunately, most, uh, most regular hand saws don't come with teeth any bigger than about five points per inch on a rare occasions you might be able to find a four point per inch saw but it's very rare for the most part what you're going to find is in the five points per inch range once you start to get into teeth that are much bigger than five points per inch a single-handed regular handsaw gets kind of aggressive um, and that's where the frame saw has an advantage because it keeps the blade in tension. If you get teeth that are too big and you try to push that saw with one hand unsupported, um, that saw has a good tendency to buckle. So the frame saw helps by keeping the blade in tension so that it doesn't buckle in the cut. The problem with some frame saws though is that their length and their weight make them somewhat difficult to manage with a, a single sawyer. So um, for example, my saw, my current frame saw, has a blade that is about four feet long uh, and the saw itself probably measures in at almost four and a half feet by the time you add the, end, uh, the ends of the frame and the hardware and everything. So it, it's a long saw. And, and it's quite heavy and it could be kind of tedious and, and exhausting to use uh, for a single person. But once you get that saw moving, um, it does cut very well and very quickly, especially in that wider stock. And it tracks very well if you can get it started straight. Um, so essentially, why I would make and use a frame saw would be if you have to do work in stock that is greater than if you're resawing veneering stock that is greater than um, eight inches thick seven to eight inches wide i mean um, and you need that saw with with bigger teeth um, that's where i would switch to the frame saw um, as i mentioned in that video less than you know less than six or seven inches wide and and i'm really sticking with a standard handsaw However, there's one caveat to that. One other area where the frame saw does excel is in long rips in thick stock. And this is, is a little bit contradictory because um, as I mentioned, resawing, I'm, I'm not using that frame saw until I get up to, you know, um, seven, eight inches thick, say it's seven or eight inches wide. Well, if you turn that board, turn that thickness around and let's say we're working with something that's about 12 quarter or 16 quarter well that's only about three to four inches thick so along those lines the standard handsaw should work just fine and it does however it's kind of slow 
Um, and even when you're sawing veneer in something that is four, five, six inches wide, with a standard handsaw, it's going to be somewhat slow going. But when I'm sawing veneer, I'm trying to saw a little bit more precisely so I'm not as concerned with speed. However, when I'm just rough ripping boards to stock, let's say I've got some 12 quarter, um, you know, cherry or something like that, and I want to make some heavy table legs out of that. Well, when I'm just ripping that stock out of a wide board, I just want to get the work done as quickly as possible. And that five point per inch handsaw is going to rip through that uh, 12 quarter cherry kind of slow. But if I can put that 12 quarter board on my workbench top, stand on top of it and use the frame saw almost as a miniature pit saw, I can rip that 12 quarter cherry a lot faster than I could with a standard uh, five point per inch rip saw. Now my frame saw uh, has a blade that I think is about two, two and a third teeth per inch or, or points per inch, I think is what it works out to, something along those lines, or, or three and a third points per inch. Um, the teeth are extremely large. So, um, and if you, again, I'll, I'll demonstrate it and, sh you know, and show it in this month's patron extra, uh, or, or patron Q and a video rather. Um, but the teeth are quite large, quite a bit larger than five point per inch saw, even though it's only, you know, one or two points per inch fewer than a five points per inch saw, the teeth are still a lot larger. So that allows it to saw a lot faster than that five points per inch saw and clear sawdust and shavings a lot, uh, a lot easier. So if I'm going to rip something really thick, um, that's a time when that frame saw could come in really handy. And as I said, if you can just, if you've got the headroom, the clearance in your shop, you can stand on top of that stock on top of your workbench and saw like you're using the, a miniature pit saw and uh, it will make quick work of those rips in thick stock. So there's a, a couple of reasons that I would use a larger frame saw. So that's it for the questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is going to be a short discussion about work holding. It was a topic suggested by Dave Chalice. So Dave says, can you talk about work holding? It'd be interesting to hear some discussion about the pros and cons of different methods. For example, Bench dogs, face vices, end vices, planing stops, hold fast, clamps, etc. Especially for hand tool woodworking. A lot of stuff I've read and watched assumes that most big work, such as planing and joining, would be done on a table saw or joiner or a planer. So it doesn't really cover how to deal with long, wide, or tiny and thin pieces on the workbench. So that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. And... I'm only really going to talk about the the work holding that I've personally used. Um, there are a lot of different vices and gizmos and gadgets on the market that uh, you can you can use, and um, I haven't used them all. So I I certainly am not going to be able to comment on every different type of vice or, or uh, work holding solution um, that is that is out there, but. 
Um, I've used a fair amount, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about a bunch of different options. So what I want to start talking about is, is what I currently use, because uh, I think over the years, um, I've used a lot of different vices. I've used wooden vices. I've used metal vices, um, twin screw, leg vice, and and I, I've kind of settled on uh, on what I'm using now. I've had I've used tail vices, um, and right now my current setup is probably the simplest of all that I've used. And I actually use two setups because I, I do have two workbenches right now, um, but. In terms of, of working faces of boards, now if, if you're familiar with um, Chris Schwarz's um, theory or, or the way he looks at workbenches, a workbench needs to be able to, uh, to hold stock for all the various ways that you would need to work with it. So it needs to be able to, you need to be able to hold the stock so that you can work on, number one, the faces of it. That would mean doing things like face planing. It could also mean making dados or rabbits or grooves in the face of a board, such as a, a rabbit for the back of a bookcase, you know, like the, the in the side of a bookcase to, to receive the backboards, uh, or a dado across the face of that bookcase side to receive the shelves. Or it could be working smaller stock like drawer sides, planing a groove uh, in to receive the drawer bottom. Uh, so you need to be able to work the faces of the boards. You also need to hold the stock so that you can work the edges of the boards. Um, and similarly, that can be for edge planing, just jointing with a long plane. It could be for planing a groove for a tongue and groove joint or the tongue for a tongue and groove joint. Uh, or maybe you're turning your board on edge to plane a rabbit for, um, you know, for a, a, uh, a shiplap joint. Um, so that, that would be number two. And number three would be you need to be able to hold the board so that you can work the ends of it. And that could be for making dovetails, uh, tenons, any other types of joinery, just simply planing the end flush. Um, so you need your bench needs to be able to hold your stock for all these different operations. And it needs to be able to hold stock of various sizes as well. If you're not going to be doing the majority of your stock prep with a joiner or planer, as Dave mentions, you will need to your bench to be able to um, to be able to hold your stock for those operations. So currently, I have I have two benches on my English bench. Um, I use a series I, I for working faces. I work against the planing stop. Uh, I do have a series of holds in the top of the workbench where I can put a work uh, a hold fast to help to secure the work from sliding laterally on the bench. Um, but I plane into the planing stop. And I have used that bench to plane boards up to eight feet long and 12 inches wide. Um, that's the longest and widest that, well, that's the longest boards um, that I have planed on that, on that bench. The widest boards were probably about 18 inches wide, but they, when I was planing them, they were probably only about four feet long. So um, 
but I've been able to, to plane the faces of all those different boards satisfactorily on this bench, as well as, um, you know, things for like drawer sides, um, you know, down to just a few inches wide by, uh, by a few inches long. So all the different size stock can be handled very easily with a simple planing stop. And my planing stop is just a three by three block of wood. That is, um, there's a three inch square mortise cut in the top of my workbench and that three by three by 12 inch long block of wood slides up and down in that mortise uh, and it's adjusted with mallet taps. You can put a toothed planing stop on the top of that if you want. Um, for years uh, and still on my English bench, um, I did not use a tooth planing stop for no other reason than I just didn't have one. Um, and the wooden planing stop worked just fine. Uh, on my, my newer bench that I did finish building a few months ago um, is a small pine um, French style bench. Um, and that again has a similar planing stop, but that one does have a metal tooth planing stop in it as well. Um, and that gives a, a little bit more grip. That's the benefit of the, um, the tooth planing stop is that it's got a little bit more, um, more bite, more grip to it. So some other ways that you can hold your boards so that you can work the faces of them, uh, as Dave mentioned, bench dogs. Now bench dogs by themselves, if you just have a, a sliding dog in a hole is nothing more than a small planing stop. If you've got no other clamping mechanism, most of the time bench dogs are used in conjunction with um, some sort of tail vise. And there are myriad different ways that you could set up a tail vise. You could have a traditional tail vise where you've got a large block that slides along the edge of the bench, either on metal hardware or a traditional wooden setup. Um, I despise those tail vices. Um, I built one years ago. I used it for a number of years. Um, they all sag no matter what you do. Uh, the wooden ones, the metal plate style, they all tend to sag over time. Um, you're constantly moving the dogs because you go to, to pinch your work between the dogs and then you find out um, you're, you're either, either can't open the vise wide enough because the dog is in the wrong hole or you can't close it down enough because it's in the wrong hole. So you're constantly moving the dogs. Um, and if your pieces are too thin and you clamp them too tight, it, the tail vise will bow your work piece, um, and you'll never be able to plane it flat. So, um, I'm really not a big fan of those tail vices at all. Um, the second style is a, is a wagon vise, and that's basically a sliding block that's captured on both sides. So that addresses the sagging issue, but you still have the issue of your stock bowing if you, uh, if you tend to grip a little bit too tightly in that vise. Um, and my experience has been that um, if you don't grip tightly enough and you're traversing the board or, or planing diagonally across the board at any amount, um, the dogs don't hold tight enough and if you clamp down on those tail vices enough so that you the, the board stays in place when you're planing across the grain or diagonally um, then it tends to bow the workpiece a little bit so um, I'm not a big fan of tail vices it's just not something that um, 
that I really like. I don't use them. Um, my last two benches that I built, my English bench and, and French bench, um, I left the tail vices off. I don't use them at all. Uh, I didn't put one on um, and I've never missed them. So um, th those are my thoughts on tail vices. Um, so that I think just about handles um, how you would, would secure stock to the top of the bench for working on the faces. Uh, one of the more recent things that, that people have been uh, getting into are these these doe's feet, I think is what uh, Chris was calling them, which is basically just a board with a notch cut in it that you hold with a hold fast and it helps to hold your boards while you're traversing or planing across the grain um, since you're not planing directly into the planing stop when you're doing that. Uh, I use one on my French bench, and it's it's a nice little appliance. Um, on my English bench, I have a stop that runs down the center between the two top boards that I can move into place, um, and that's what I use to uh, to hold the boards when I'm traversing or planing across the grain. It's just a I left a gap between the two boards that I use to make the top of that bench. <clears throat> That gap is about a half an inch, five eighths of an inch wide, and I have a um, a five eighth of an inch piece of wood filling that gap, but it's not glued in or secured in any way. And then I can raise that up above the bench slightly, and <clears throat> excuse me, use that as a planing stop when I'm traversing. So uh, that works really, really well. But only works for boards that are you know up to the width of that that first board up to the gap. So. So that's probably most of most of the ways you might hold um, hold boards on the face, so that you can work the faces of them. There are a couple other options. Um, I believe I believe Veritas has like a little dog thing with a, a screw clamp on it. Uh, I've never used it, so I'm not really going to comment any more on it, except to say that it exists. Um, you know, my preference. For all these is just the straight up planing stop with the 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 toothed metal planing stop in it. Um, that is has been my favorite uh, my favorite way for working on top of the bench, working on faces. And if you've seen any of my videos before, um, you've seen me do this plenty uh, planing into the planing stop. So um, that is my preference for working on the faces. Even if I've got to plane a rabbit. Um, or a, a groove along the grain, I will work against the planing stop and use a, a simple stop to keep the board from sliding laterally along the bench. Something held down um, by a holdfast could be just a scrap of wood or a doe's foot or something along those lines. And uh, that allows me to plane rabbits and grooves uh, along the faces of those boards. So my preference, nothing more than a planing stop and maybe a couple holdfasts. Uh, to do the work on the faces of boards. Moving on to the edges. Um, again, I have two different methods that I use depending on which bench I'm working at. If I'm working at my English bench, then I have a crochet, which is just a wooden hook that is bolted to the front of the bench. Uh, at the if you're stare if you're looking at the bench, it's on the left side of the bench, or the left end of the front of the bench. And the front of that bench is pierced with holes that I can put pegs or holdfasts in. And I set the board on edge on top of those pegs or holdfasts. I tuck it into the crochet. 
uh, and that's all I need. I can plane the edges of boards until the cows come home with that setup. Uh, the boards are, are solid and sturdy. They don't move, uh, and they're well supported along their whole length. Um, long or short, I can take care of planing most of those boards. When the boards get too narrow to be able to plane in the crochet to work on the edges, I will switch to working them on the bench top. So if it's a if the board is thick enough, let's say four quarter or wider, um, and it will balance on its edge on its own, I can just plane into the planing stop. If the board is not if it's kind of thin, maybe it's only, you know, maybe it's less than four quarter, maybe it's like a three quarter or, or even thinner than three quarter, and I need to work the edge of that board. Um, if it's a really long board, I will work it on the top of my bench. I'll plane it on the top of my bench, working into the planing stop because I want the workbench to support the length of that board. Um, if it's a little tippy, even working against the planing stop, uh, one thing that I've done successfully that works really well is to use a hand screw clamp to clamp on the far end of that stock, the end away from the planing stop. And that hand screw clamp serves only to balance the, uh, the board on edge and keep it from tipping over while I'm planing the edge of it. Um, as long as you know the, the piece is narrower than the jaws of the hand screw clamp. Um, which will really get you down to pieces that are about an inch and a half, um, an inch and a half wide. If the piece is short and uh, if it's not too tippy, again, I'll work it just on the bench top right into the planing stop, uh, or I'll work it in the face vise. Um, and again, I have two different versions of that on my English bench. I have a twin screw face vise that I absolutely adore. And on the French bench, I have a single screw leg vise that I'm getting used to. Um, I'm not sure that I like it as much as the twin screw vise. Um, but for taking small pieces, working, planing the edges of them, um, it works quite well. When I'm securing stock for joinery on edge, you know, if I'm not just planing the edges, um, Again, I will, I'll work on the top if I'm cutting a mortise, say. Uh, I'll work on top of the bench with a holdfast. And uh, that holdfast can hold the board on edge. If it's a narrower board and I'm afraid of busting out the side of the mortise, one of my favorite methods is to, again, employ a wooden hand screw clamp and then use the holdfast to hold the hand screw clamp in place. What this allows me to do is clamp my stock. Let's say I'm, I'm chopping a mortise in the styles of a door frame. I can hold my stock in the hand screw clamp, which supports the sides of that mortise, and then use the hold fast to hold the hand screw clamp to the top of the workbench. Then I can just loosen or tighten the hand screw clamp almost like using a vise, and I can easily remove. Um, or turn or replace the workpiece in the jaws of the hand screw clamp. So it's almost like a vise that sits on top of the workbench. Uh, that's one of my favorite methods there. Uh, let's see, any other ways that I, I tend to work on edges? I think, you know, if it's a short piece in the vise tends to work the best. 
Um, also work in joinery, it, it depends on the width of the piece. If it's a short piece, but quite wide, say maybe the, um, the side of a drawer or, or something like that size, and uh, maybe I want to plane a rabbit in the bottom, uh, I might hold it in the face vise and that allow that will allow me to plane a rabbit on the edge of that board. Uh, but if it's too narrow, sometimes the, the board might be too narrow. Um, I may not be able to hold it in the face vise because the, the fence of the plane might get in the way. Uh, so in those cases, uh, again, I might try to work on the on top of the workbench without anything actually gripping the sides of the workpiece, uh, if possible. Um, sometimes it's just not, and, and you kind of have to come up with a workaround. Um, you know, if you've got a really narrow piece that you're trying to make a rabbit in or plow a groove in, um, but even working those on the work on the, the surface of the workbench or, or in the vise is going to be problematic. So, uh, but most of the time you can usually find a way to, to hold the board to uh, work the edges of the board. So then finally, um, we come to working the ends of the board. So one of the, um, that, you know, usually we're talking there about some kind of joinery. Um, and there's a lot of different ways you can, you can hold your stock. Again, there's, there are different various vices. Um, when I'm cutting dovetails or, or needing to work the ends of a board, um, to me, there is no better vise than a twin screw vise. Whether it's a an integral twin screw vise that's attached to your bench, like a wooden twin screw vise, or the Veritas twin screw vise, or the Lee Nielsen twin screw vise, um, or a separate twin screw vise like the, the quote-unquote Moxon vises uh, that you can, you know, secure to your bench to the top of your bench with a, a hold fast um, nothing works like a twin screw vise for holding stock of almost any width so that you can work the ends of it whether it's planing the ends or cutting dovetails say, uh, let's say or um, even sawing tenons um, for for that type of joinery as well because for you're you're mostly working the um, the ends of pieces there um, because usually your stock is long enough to hit the screw or guide rails of any other type of vise so what you end up having to do is clamp the piece on the edge of those other vices which tends to rack the jaws which tends to not hold as securely when the jaws are racking Whereas in the twin screw vise, you typically have nothing blocking you all the way to the floor. So you can put pieces that are quite long in between the screws of a twin screw vise, hold them very securely for cutting your joinery, planing the end grain, uh, whatever you need to do. So my absolute favorite for that kind of stuff is um, for sure the twin screw vise. Um, Right now, my English bench is covered up with a whole bunch of other stuff, and the top of it is full right now. So I have been using the French bench, and um, I wouldn't say I've been suffering with the leg vise, but um, it's certainly, in in my experience, not quite as friendly. Um, I think the twin screw vise for working ends um, is still uh, superior to the leg vise. 
Um, but again, that's just a, a personal preference. Now, there are also ways that you can do all of these things without any kind of dedicated vice. Um, there are ways that you can um, kind of make your own vice out of pipes, uh, like like uh, black iron pipe, like you would use for gas line, uh, pipe clamps, essentially, pipe clamp fixtures. And you can make your own vices using those, and, and they tend to work quite well. You can also just use clamps to clamp things to the side of your workbench instead of, uh, instead of using a vise. And, uh, and that will work quite well if you've got a couple of pipe clamps or a couple of uh, longer F clamps or even parallel jaw clamps. You can use those kind of as a vise. Just lay the clamps across your bench top and clamp your work to the edge of your bench. Um, and you can do that for the most part regardless of what type of bench you have. Um, if you've got an English bench with really long aprons, if the clamps are um, laying on top of the workbench, it really doesn't matter how wide the aprons are. You can still clamp that stock um, to the front apron of the workbench just by um, laying the clamps across the workbench top. So that's a good method if you've got um, really wide work pieces that don't quite fit between the screws of your twin screw vise if you have a twin screw vise or if you're using a leg vise if you're working on like the side of a, a case and uh, you need to cut some case dovetails and maybe that case is like 24 inches wide and uh, you know it doesn't hold too well in your leg vise because you've only got a, a small area there uh, you can just use a couple clamps and clamp right to the front edge of that workbench uh, and that works really well uh, and on the English style benches, um, you can do that with holdfasts. You don't even need clamps. You can put your piece along the front edge of that apron, and uh, with a pair of holdfasts, you can use those as a almost as a, a makeshift twin screw vise, um, just using a pair of holdfasts, and that works really well. Um, if you there, there's actually a video that Mike Seamson did. Uh, Mike Seamson runs the Mike Seamson School of Woodworking up in Minnesota. He's a, a friend of mine and uh, very knowledgeable. And uh, he, he designed a essentially a viceless English workbench and shows all the different ways you can use that workbench um, without any type of vice, all the different work holding methods. Uh, on his YouTube channel, he did a video of uh, work holding on the viceless workbench. Um, so just just do a search for Mike Seamson, it's S-I-E-M-S-E-N, um, and look for his video on uh, work holding on the viceless workbench, and you'll see all different ways that you can use a, a workbench like that without any type of commercial vices at all, and it's a, it's a very freeing way to work. Um, so uh, that's about all I have, I think. Um, and that should give you a lot of options, but regardless of what you end up going with in your own shops or, or on your own benches, if you keep in mind that you're going to need a way to work, you know, to hold the stock so that you can work the face so that you can work the edge and so that you can work the ends, I think 
that is going to get you where you want to be. And as long as your bench is capable of doing that, it really doesn't matter what type of work holding you use, as long as you can perform those tasks and do the work holding on those surfaces, uh, you will be just fine. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and allowing me to do this. I am extremely grateful for all the support you have all provided. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 or use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you'll find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt046. In the show notes, you'll find any links that I referred to in today's show, and you'll also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon and get your questions answered in the monthly Q&A video, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com slash support. So thank you again for listening. And until next time, stay sharp, everybody.